welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. I, again, apologize for being gone for a couple of months. It was not something that I expected, not something that I really enjoyed being away, especially as all of these incredible developments have been happening both in the U.S. and internationally. But we're back on board, and as promised, um, it's going to be consistent, and I'm going to be consistently having excellent guests, including the one that I'm going to present today. Very, very excited to speak with him. But before we can do that, can I just do a quick little plug for Counterpunch, if you all don't mind? Um, I really think that Counterpunch stands in many ways alone on the left in terms of what it really means. Counterpunch is not just a news outlet. It's not just a platform for left-wing ideas. It's also a place where ideas and the struggle of ideas is fought out. I think we have a lot of competing perspectives in Counterpunch, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, and quite frankly, sometimes it's it gets it gets nasty, it gets heated, and I love that. I think that Counterpunch really serves a very important role, particularly now in the climate that we have, the so-called era of fake news, the the era of Donald Trump, the information wars and so forth. I think that really Counterpunch is uh, as important now as it ever was, maybe more more so. Uh, if you agree with me, then maybe you consider becoming a subscriber to Counterpunch. The print magazine is, an, is a great, great resource, and it's a great way to support Counterpunch, to support the project. Uh, you know, pick up the phone, call Becky in California at the Counterpunch office, uh, order online, whatever you got to do, get yourself that subscription. You will not regret it. Of course, also visiting the website every single day. There's new content. That website doesn't run itself, and it doesn't fund itself, so any support you can give to Counterpunch is always greatly appreciated. Uh, so with that out of the way, can I turn to my guest? I'm very, very, very excited to speak with him today. Uh, somebody whose work I've followed for quite a long time, agreed with some, disagreed with some three years ago. Maybe I disagreed with some that I don't disagree with today. So I'm going to have a fascinating conversation. Patrick Bond is my guest today. Patrick is a professor of political economy at the University of the Witwatersrand, uh, the Witt School of Governance in South Africa. He is a well-respected academic and author. He uh, edited just a couple of years ago, very important book, Bricks and Anti-Capitalist Critique, which was published by Haymarket. He was also the co-author of South Africa, The Present as History. And he is the author of the forthcoming book, a very, very exciting work coming out just in a few months, City of Rascals, The Uneven Development of Durban. That should be out uh, by the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. Patrick Bond, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for coming on. Eric, thank you very, very much. It's wonderful. Uh, you've got such a good project getting uh, Counterpunch to the airwaves and what a wonderful platform Counterpunch itself is. So congratulations. Keep it up. Uh, thank you so much. Now, I want to just jump into our conversation here uh, today because there's so much to talk about in terms of South Africa, both in terms of the domestic politics in South Africa, which has been in tremendous upheaval uh, in the last 12 months or so, and certainly because of South Africa's quite important role both on the continent of Africa and broadly in international politics. But in order to understand some of that upheaval and understand South Africa's place, we should understand what has brought us to this point. So recently we've seen the ouster of former President Jacob Zuma, the ascension of a new president, a new head of the African National Congress, the ANC. Can you give a little bit of background for people who maybe haven't been following it so closely? 
What happened to Jacob Zuma? What led to his ouster? And what were some of the circumstances surrounding him that created this chaotic climate? Well, the very simple word is the the Gupta uh, brothers. So there were three brothers from India who uh, in the mid-1990s moved to South Africa. And by uh, sort of 10 years, they managed to penetrate uh, through hook or by crook. We haven't got a, a very good understanding of their initial let me call it primitive accumulation of capital, but they certainly became rich enough by um, around 2009-10 to uh, approach uh, Zuma. They had uh, various um, alliances with others in prior governments, including the Mbeki government, the, the uh, former uh, uh, president, uh, minister in the, in the presidency, was uh, by, uh, I think by all accounts, the man who, who uh, has introduced the Gupta family and his name was Isa Pahad, and once he was the editor of the World Marxist Review, not at all like Counterpunch, but played a, a sort of interesting role for the East Bloc back in the 60s and 70s. Um, so anyway, Isa Pahad brought the Gupta brothers into the circuits of power, and they suddenly found with uh, the Zumas, particularly when uh, the Zuma's son, Duduzani, needed a job, that they could start influencing through this, um, you know, quite sort of clever way of of managing state contracts through their companies. And their companies were initially a computer company and they expanded into media and into uh, mining. And uh, their biggest uh, Achilles heel, they didn't have a financial institution. They tried to buy one that, that failed, but that's what really ultimately has brought them down um, because a lot more revelations about their financial misdeeds have occurred, not just the bribery and uh, capture, it's called here, state capture, but that they took, um, billions of dollars uh, out of South Africa. Again, nobody has all the details, but it turns out this week that a major state-owned bank from India, the Bank of Baroda, uh, is now being kind of kicked out of South Africa, but it had really only one function here, which was to service this family's account. And so we've got an interesting picture, not of a standard uh, corporate capitalist Western um, influence over uh, South Africa, which had really been the story since uh, 1994, when I actually worked in President Mandela's office. I, I was the drafter of his first white paper, uh, the Reconstruction and Development Policy. And you could really feel at that point that local white capital, especially um, the financial and mining circuits of capital, plus uh, global forces, and here we're talking from, you know, imperial uh, presidencies of Bill Clinton and and later Tony Blair, they were very influential, but also um, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, very powerful in that early period from uh, the, right through the 1990s, even before the ANC came to power, um, the IMF had started relending in, in late 1993. The World Bank was doing all manner of policy projects, probably more than you know a dozen that uh, ended up being quite influential. And then there were Western corporates and always the big agenda was foreign direct investment. So something switched by the um, time when President Thabo Mbeki, Zuma's predecessor, was kicked out in 2008. And that was uh, a sort of um, inability of Western capital to continue influencing in the old way and a much cruder, more raw version, which came to be known as the sort of fusion of the Gupta brothers and Jacob Zuma, and it's sometimes nicknamed the Zuptas. So the Zuptas on the one hand, uh, and then of course they brought forth a, a rhetoric about uh, how they were disrupting local power and 
uh, they were basically against white monopoly capital. So WMC became the other big block in this in this war between, frankly, hostile brothers about who could loot this country. You know, it's very interesting the way in which, uh, you know, this sort of the fusion between Zuma and the Guptas and what that represents, because on the one hand, I think a lot of us, particularly who are, you know, observers of, of the politics in South Africa, do tend to have a little bit of a, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, and pardon the pun, a black and white view of South Africa. I don't mean that in terms of blacks and whites. I mean that in terms of seeing the ANC as either uh, upholding a revolutionary legacy as it, you know, uh, controls the reins of government, or on the other hand, being a slave of neoliberal finance capital uh, in much the same way that it has been for quite a long time. And I think that in in reading your work and in the, reading the work of others, I think the picture becomes a little bit more complex than that, and that the time that Zuma was in office was really marked by this, I think the word you used, fusion, is quite correct. And so in that way, I think Zuma is in contrast to Cyril Ramaphosa, who is now leading the ANC. So can you talk a little bit about whether or not you think that Zuma and the Guptas represented neoliberal finance capital, and to what extent did they represent forces that maybe are different from those that Ramaphosa represents? Well, certainly it's it's a, a diverse set of uh, looting processes in which uh, pure patrimonialism, or in other words, a sort of um, uh, use of the state simply to um, uh, enrich and, and uh, uh, allow for a primitive accumulation, uh, really characterizes the last period. It's hard to say that there's a major fraction of capital that's been dominant. Now, this is quite a, a strong rhetorical tradition in South Africa. In fact, the uh, people around Nikos Polansis began to work uh, on fractions of capital, uh, particularly at Sussex University in the 1970s to identify over the history, when did different kinds of capitalisms emerge, uh, particularly with the sort of early uh, mercantile capital, then there was the farming capital, and there was after Cecil Rhodes and the diamond finds, uh, the, the, the mining houses, the mining capital, and uh, different fractions uh, suddenly in the 1920s and 30s, manufacturing capital, and financial capital always around. Uh, you could always identify English-speaking capital and international capital, but also from the 40s or so, Afrikaner capital, that was the other white ethnic group here in addition to the to the white English colonialists. And um, so we haven't really seen a black uh, fraction of capital. It's a very diverse field and one wouldn't want to simply reduce it to, to race. But what the, the failure of black economic empowerment in its first couple of manifestations, really epitomized by Cyril Ramaphosa's initial failures in big business from about 97 to 2001, um, really allowed then the mining fraction to reassert ascendancy. Now, this is because of the global um, commodity super cycle. So from about 2002 to around 2011, 12, uh, a peak uh, was hit in, in commodity prices. Our four main commodity exports are coal, iron, or gold, and platinum. And so by um, riding that wave in the 2000s, a few black billionaires, including Cyril Ramaphosa through Lawnman and through his own company, Shanduka, uh, were able to take advantage of mining. Uh, the Zupta network also moved into mining a little bit late, mainly uranium and more recently coal. But then, you know, the mining industries utterly crashed in 2015, 
companies like Lonmin lost nine percent of share value as uh, uh, all the prices went down. In 2014, we had a five-month strike. I'm sure the listeners would also remember 2012 was when there was a massacre at Lonmin. Talk about this, the Ramaphosa's fingerprints are on that massacre in, in two or three different ways. But uh, the Zupta group didn't really worry about which fraction they could surf, but rather just which state agencies they could penetrate. And it was um, largely the transport and to some extent the electricity parastatal. So these are very, very, very big companies amongst the you know dozen biggest companies in the country. Uh, ESCOM, the electricity company, is really you know one of the top ones, maybe fifth or sixth in the world. And uh, it's a huge set of coal-fired power plants with one nuclear reactor. And they started doing deals because at some point, 2011 is where most people would place it. The Minister of State Enterprises, who's just been moved from finance to home affairs, Malusi Gaba, started appointing Zupta allies into the top positions. And then came these contracts. So lots of entrepreneurial or what we call tenderpreneurial because the entrepreneurs are really just taking tenders from the state, the, the sort of uh, outsourcing systems. And those systems are very, very lucrative because huge markups are given. And they're so lucrative that the biggest companies in the world that are meant to monitor and provide accounting and oversight services like KPMG or McKinsey's are actually bought into this. This has now become a major part of the scandal, which is not just that it's Zupta's and this one family of three brothers, but that the rot extends. In fact, uh, Eric, you'll be amused that uh, one of the top uh, PR firms in the world, which is uh, Bell Pottinger, is actually bankrupt today because of what they did on behalf of the Gupta brothers and Zuma, uh, Zuma's son Dudizani, uh, most precisely, because uh, they were brought in to develop memes like white monopoly capital and uh, Twitter uh, armies. There was a whole Twitter farm breeding process here where thousands of, of uh, Twitter bots were, were let loose uh, and to shape a narrative about white monopoly capital. And that happened um, in 2016, 17, but they were really busted by 2017. And by September that year, uh, with lots of pressure from British capital, Bill Pottinger just co completely collapsed. Every major client just cut ties because this was seen as so reprehensible that the, that the brotherhood, shall we say, in South Africa of white monopoly capital was under attack by uh, British, uh, you know, monopoly or oligopolist uh, in the in the PR agency, Bell Pottinger, and so the the brothers turned on Bell Pottinger and, and and shut it down. But KPMG is also in big trouble. They they've had a, a an awful nickname here, the, the wedding planners, because they um, allowed uh, about uh, three million dollars or so of of funding to be transferred to the Gupta family in 2013. I, I might add for your listeners, that's when. Most of us became aware that there were these three guys and they had a big extended family from India. They brought some of the top politicians and Bollywood stars for a wedding. And in the wedding controversy, they landed a, a major aircraft uh, from Jet Airways uh, at a special uh, army base called Waterkloof, which is really just used by the president. It's a it's a real national security site, right? It would be going to Andrews Air Force Base with a, with a wedding party for some, you know, just kind of crazy, right? And they violated all the uh, immigration restrictions and customs, and they they had special uh, illegal 
uh, police uh, escorts to one of the most famous places in this country, Sun City, which is what uh, Saul Kurtzner wrote. Your, your older listeners will remember as I uh, was uh, in the 1980s fighting against uh, musicians that played in Sun City. And so they had this big wedding at Sun City in Lost City uh, about uh, a couple of hours away. And then uh, apparently there was a lot of racism. The, 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 the guests didn't want to have uh, the local black African um, masseurs or waiters. They insisted on whites. There was a whole mess associated with that wedding that just, uh, but particularly that it involved state funds that were meant for poor people and for for uh, agricultural projects, and they were diverted. And it turns out that the man that's now leading the ANC, his name is Ace Makhshule, was the head of this province where this happened, and has apparently had some implication, you know, implications, some of his own family members involved with the Zuptas. And it brings me to the point where it's very hard once you get this kind of state capture that goes so deep, uh, and uh, so many of the Zupta um, uh, cadre are embedded deep in the state, and now they're, you know, right up at the top of the ANC along with their enemy, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, in a sort of very um, uncomfortable alliance at the top of our ruling party. That this is not just um, a new Ramaphosa uh, government, but perhaps a Ramazupta government, because at the top of the ANC, Ismakashuli, his deputy, Jesse Duarte, and then the new deputy president sworn in this week. Um, whose name is David Mabuza, are all very much implicated in extreme levels of corruption and malfeasance. And a lot of it is to do with these three brothers and just how deep they went into the South African state. You know, that's one of the interesting things for me, uh, Patrick, is that as I'm watching this as an observer, and, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on South African politics, but I mean, I follow it probably more closely than most people uh, outside of South Africa. And the thing that really struck me was that, OK, you're you have the ousting of Jacob Zuma. He's replaced by Cyril Ramaphosa. All of the same forces, or seemingly all of, maybe most of, the same forces that were responsible for driving the corruption, the patronage, the cronyism, all of the different things that really were the, the pretext for removing Zuma, that all remains in place. And so this was, at least from my perspective, really uh, more of a symbolic move and maybe an electoral move and certainly a cynical one, I think, by the ANC, rather than any anything substantive. So would you agree with that aspect of it? And how much of this is really about 2019 and the elections versus, you know, any kind of a substantive or fundamental change within the ANC's course? Well, you're right that the 2019 elections loomed and there is a scenario. It may still, although there's a smaller chance, it may still uh, transpire that the African National Congress, in power since 1994, since Nelson Mandela led the movement to uh, a victory, normally getting in the sort of 60 to 67 percent of the vote, so a very solid uh, ruling party uh, with a pretty feisty opposition, center-right opposition, and since 2013, a far-left opposition, the economic freedom fighters. And uh, what we've seen in Johannesburg and uh, Pretoria, the, the you know, two major cities here, uh, is that the combination of the center-right and the far-left uh, were enough in the two cities to overthrow the ANC in the 2016 election. Uh, and the ANC had already lost Cape Town uh, to the center-right and uh, also in 2016 lost the, the fifth largest city, Port Elizabeth. So when you put this together with the ANC really only retaining two of the top seven cities, Durban and another city where the airport is, Echo Um 
and then the 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 medium-sized towns and the smaller towns being a little bit uh, tense lots of protests um two things are going on obviously like zimbabwe when uh, robert mugabe faced a similar uh, you know sort of scenario of being pushed out of power that was in february 2000 he um did quite a few political gimmicks and we've just seen the anc this week follow through on one of those which was around land reform i say political gimmick in zimbabwe it did result in all the white farmers with maybe three four hundred exceptions being pushed off the land and, and land invasions being tolerated by the state which was for the first time in 20 years that's zimbabwe and it was um, a moment where robert mugabe needed to sort of renew a political mandate and remind his voters that the ruling party was close to the base here we've got something slightly similar though i don't think anymore with with ramaphosa in charge there's any chance that they'll go below 50 percent but the anc um, was facing a potential 2019 uh, scenario where they would lose national power in a coalition between the, all the other opposition parties and yes that was why uh Cyril ramaphosa took these extraordinary steps raised lots of money i mean he's a billionaire so there's no no worry on that front and ultimately defeated just by a whisker 51 49 percent kind of margin um inkasasanat leminizuma to, to lead the anc and inkasasanat leminizuma is, is is well known here because she served in the parliament she was one of uh, jacob zuma's wives that they divorced um and then she had been the head of the african union and was uh, only uh, instead of serving two terms only decided to serve one term in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, so she could come back and run for president. Uh, and then this week she was just brought into the cabinet in, as the uh, minister without portfolio in the presidency. So we'll see a bit more of her. But but that was sort of that um, uh, extraordinary fight in December. And at one level, you're right, Eric, it didn't mean much because the bigger policy terrain isn't going to shift much. Although this week, uh, you know, land reform called expropriation without compensation is technically feasible. The constitution is now being changed to allow that instead of pure uh, property rights as, as the, sort of the paramount force. But well, I think, uh, the, yeah, go ahead. I, I just wanted to uh, throw in an additional point here just uh, for, for listeners. There's there's this longstanding concept called willing buyer, willing seller, which I think has really kind of been the underpinning of the whole land question in South Africa, right? That in other words, you can't compel a landowner to sell their land and you know there's a whole process involved and this was part of the long you know uh, uh, trajectory of negotiations going back to the 90s and Mandela's period and so forth but the the idea that willing buyer willing seller falls by the wayside and instead you're going to have some kind of radical land expropriation led by a billionaire neoliberal uh, at the head of the ANC I find somewhat laughable and I'm just wondering to what extent are people in South Africa uh, also finding it laughable well it's very important symbolically obviously there's um, uh, a long tradition in, in racial liberation around uh, the land and the, the 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 difference between Zimbabwe where there was a rural guerrilla movement the both um, Zimbabwe African national um, and the um, Zimbabwe African patriotic uh, armies one led by uh, Robert Mugabe, the other by Joshua and Como, they both stressed the land and they were rural uh, movements, especially Mugabe's. It was a, in a you know, sort of traditional Maoist sense uh, that they took uh, from the rural areas, eventually took uh, power. In contrast, South Africa's always had uh, mostly an urban uprising and, and the, the liberation movement has been rooted in the cities with not much 
power in the rural areas, aside from uh, the vast number of voters, about 40% of the country is rural, and they'll vote by and large for the ANC. So that's their power base. They'll certainly want to continue to to throw out some uh, of the rhetoric, but it's not at all like the situation where people really gave up their lives. In Zimbabwe's case, 40,000 died in the rural areas in a guerrilla war. Um, and I think that's the big difference. The other is that we haven't seen much rural social movement activism, let's say like a Via Campesino in Brazil or, uh, the, or the movement of landless workers that generated the, the big international Via Campesino. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, sort of uh, rural landless movements, people, uh, landless people's movements that we did about 15 years ago, the beginning of a rural movement. And I think <clears throat> that's one of the most interesting problems is can you force uh, this kind of rhetorical change, which has very important, you know, racial liberatory implications without the base, without the, the sort of base. And also, can you force it, um, uh, unlike, say, Zimbabwe, I don't think Cyril Ramaphosa is uh, facing a potential uh, electoral defeat next year. And, and it is, that is really why the ANC decision ultimately and why the ANC is very enthusiastic and there's a sort of sense of renewal that they can win the 2019 election and not go down in flames. But it does uh, raise the question, what's what's really new and different? Because uh, this uh, two weeks ago, we just saw a, uh, just right after the transfer of power on February 14, there was a budget speech in which uh, the same neoliberal nationalist themes and the same pain for the poor in this country were visited. Um, and we have really the most powerful forces in the country are the credit rating agencies. Right now, Moody's is about to, uh, to determine whether we get the final junk rating that would that would mean a, a big outflow of funds, say from the Citibank Mutual Investors Index. Um, and at that point, um, you can really feel in the day-to-day -day discussion that whatever Standard & Poor's, Fitch and Moody's have to say is what the finance minister, no matter who he is, uh, is going to be doing. So that's one of our biggest dilemmas is um, sorting out the three brothers from Sachsenwald, which is a, a neighborhood in Johannesburg who are quite notorious uh, for state capture and manipulating the government on the one hand, and the three brothers from Manhattan, uh, New York, Standard and Poor's, Fitch and Moody's, who really have done the state capture since, well, since I can remember 1994 when I worked in Mandela's office. And uh, there was a great uh, celebration that South Africa got um, above junk rating in uh, September 94. And at that point, those credit rating agencies have been able to, uh, well, as part of the general uh, force of capital to force a sort of uh, fiscal discipline and to, you know, keep the policy in place, which make this extraordinary inequality we have, uh, the world's worst, even worse than it was in 1994. I want to return to the uh, the role of Moody's and Fitch and the rating agencies probably in the second half of our show today. But uh, you mentioned the social movements, the grassroots movements, and I think that that's an important point because uh, people who don't follow South Africa closely might not realize, but there is a long tradition of, and, and certainly today of very active, very militant uh, forces uh, within the grassroots movements. And in particular, the ones that I the ones that I know of, I'm sure there are others, but that I follow the urban shack dwellers movement and the landless peasants movements. I mean, they have things like regular land occupations where, you know, these shanty towns and stuff are erected on land that is 
is more or less uh, squatted on by landless peasants and so forth. This is something that they've been battling with the ANC going back at least a decade, maybe longer than that. Uh, So to what extent is that uh, continuing force, and certainly under the Ramaphosa government, will it escalate considering the fact that Ramaphosa has you know, for, for better or worse, a very bloody legacy associated with Maracana and the massacre at the Lunmin Mine in 2012, that he is seen by many as an enemy of the poor, an enemy of, of uh, working people, certainly of the rank and file of some of the uh, more militant trade unions. So can you speak a little bit to uh, your perspective on Ramaphosa's ability to marshal all of these different forces and more or less keep them in line or at the very least keep them in check? Well, yes, we should begin by acknowledging that this is probably the most skilled politician probably since Mandela and maybe in, uh, even more so. And, and uh, he learned his politics as a radical student in the 1970s. You remember the 1976 student rebellion of uh, Soweto and uh, his particular struggles in uh, the northern part of the country led him to expulsion. He eventually got his law degree. He then served as a lawyer and then the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers, which for um, many, many years was the biggest union. They even, under his uh, leadership in 1987, uh, had a national strike on the gold mine, something that was seen as uh, inconceivable, although they didn't win. Uh, that was sort of the essence of the, the rise of labor power and the anti-apartheid a labor um, uh, alliance that put Cyril Ramaphosa right up at the very top of uh, local politics. Indeed, in 1991, he was elected to run the ANC as its secretary general. Sort of, a, it's, it's, it's hard to say because in the U.S. there's no equivalent kind of person that Terry McAuliffe doesn't quite, you know, measure up, but a, but a real leader uh, of the ANC, the, the secretary general. Um, he then lost his battle to, to replace Mandela um, against Thabo Mbeki. Uh, and Mbeki maneuvered, and particularly with the ANC Youth League, uh, supporting him in the ANC Women's League. Uh, Mandela chose Mbeki, although he often said, no, actually, we think we need for ethnic balancing, not another member of the Kosa uh, people. Uh, Mandela and Mbeki were from Eastern Cape originally, but we need somebody from a different part of the country. And Ramaphosa was logical. So it was in pushing him out uh, in 94, uh, which meant he, he could have been a finance minister, but he, he wanted to be deputy president, uh, that uh, Mandela said, look, at least what you can do, you can keep running the ANC, but also we have two other things in mind. One, make us a constitution. And the constitution has this uh, profound commitment to property rights, although, as we said, it's just been relaxed this week on uh, on land. The the other thing that, that Mandela had in mind was we need to deracialize business. We need to put our top cadres into the corporate sector. And so Cyril Ramaphosa was chosen to do that. And he did it through Anglo-American and through one of the companies called Jonic. And unfortunately, it, it met a terrible end. And part of it split off and was involved in a big corrupt morass with a with a guy called Brett Kebble. But, but Ramaphosa wasn't implicated there. He was, however, implicated in um, a strategy, which was to borrow uh, lots of money and use the share price of the the new acquisition as a collateral. And if the interest rates go up and the share price goes down, then it's all over. And that's what happened in 1998. And so Ramaphosa lost that particular company and then indeed the entire model collapsed. And uh, you may recall that in 98, uh, there were all kinds of countries, Malaysia, Thailand, South Korea, 
uh, Russia and um, uh, what were some of the others, Brazil at some point, they all went under in a, in a big sort of emerging markets crash. And that was South Africa's fate. And with the high interest rates and the crashing stock market, Ramaphosa had to move into a different stage. He had one other uh, failed effort with a local entrepreneur uh, called Malope family. That was a disaster. But then he found a way to get in. And the second stage of this wasn't based on borrowing and um, investing based on that collateral, but getting rich through um, becoming the local partners. And many of the industries were required to give 25% of their equity, uh, their wealth to local black partners. And Ramaphosa led that. That's how he got a big chunk of lawmen. But he also was the local um, franchisee for McDonald's, for uh, Coca-Cola. He worked with major banks like Standard Bank. Um, and then he chaired the major telephone company of the entire continent, MTN. And, you know, in, in many of these respects, that's when, especially with MTN and Lawnman, we began to understand uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's business ethics. And they're, they're not impressive. Uh, he took huge amounts of money abroad. And his own company, which is called Shanduka, uh, was implicated in the Paradise Papers last November. So this is a man who comes back into government in 2012, a few weeks after a massacre that he is alleged to have had some role in. Let me very quickly tell you why. Um, he wrote emails uh, during a wildcat strike of about 4,000 workers at the Lawnman Platinum Mine in Maracana, a couple of hours to the northeast of, northwest of Johannesburg. And um, what he wrote was quite revealing. He said, this isn't about a labor problem. This is, in his words, quote, dastardly criminal. And he wrote that because 10 people had been killed in the strike uh, as it had unfolded over the prior week. Um, and then he said, uh, we need um, concomitant action. And then he said, uh, we need a pointed response. So those phrases were emailed both to the lawnmen uh, leadership and also to the police minister. And he was doing very heavy lobbying of the top ministers, the police and mining minister, to get them to declare this as a sort of major emergency and to bring the police. So the police, within 24 hours, uh, showed up and, and set up a, um, a cordon in which the, the workers began to move. They were actually moving relatively peacefully back to their uh, shacks, but then they were mowed down in this hail of gunfire. 34 were killed. In fact, of those, about half were killed in an execution-style mode uh, that also has come out in the last couple of weeks as some of the police have come forward with new information. So this was a ghastly experience. The context, though, is that Longman was, uh, at one point, 1973, named as the unacceptable face of capitalism by the British Tory prime minister. And it was because Tiny Rowland was the leader of the company and was bribing and could, you know, was, was corrupting everyone he could find. Notorious uh, figure. But the remnants of that company then became the third largest platinum mine. And they continued to use migrant labor, even after apartheid. Most of our big mining houses still rely on the migrant system, which was the core, in a way, economically of apartheid, where black women reproduce the labor of black men very inexpensively. They don't have much in the way of uh, state assistance schools or uh, health systems or retirement systems. So the black men go and they work and 11 months a year, they go back one month a year. And that system continued. And what we needed was to completely change it and have family housing in these mining uh, zones. And unfortunately, Ramaphosa was mandated to, to build 5,500 houses for his workers in Maracana. Um, he only built three. And he claimed it was because he didn't have enough money. But ultimately, we found a World Bank loan that was 
available for him to do so. And you know, so that's one of the the, the three problems: the emails, um, the failure to build houses, and the third was moving about a hundred million dollars to Bermuda in what was quite clearly a tax dodge. Uh, so those three uh, implications of Ramaphosa's role, very explicitly his. Uh, fingerprints on all of those mean that, as he put it in his first uh, or second major speech uh, on February 21, I think it was, he said, we need atonement for Maracana, even though a state commission cleared him on the email saga of direct catalytic role. So it just goes to show that once you get into these companies in South Africa, no matter what you do, um, you're going to end up pretty dirty. And just as a final bit of evidence on that, this week we had the PricewaterhouseCoopers Economic Crimes Report, which is the survey of the degree of corporate corruption in any country. They uh, survey about 113 countries and they do a fairly rigorous survey of the top executives. And South Africa has won again. Uh, this year, the Kenyans were second, the French were third, uh, the Russians were fourth. Uh, really, of course, the US should be way up there if they measured how much a presidency can be <laughs> purchased by corporations and Wall Street and so forth. But let's just say that the way PricewaterhouseCoopers with their methodology identifies corruption in a variety of ways, South Africa's uh, elites, basically still whites, uh, are basically the world's most corrupt bourgeoisie. And Cyril Ramaphosa was perfectly at home in that group, uh, perfectly comfortable in adapting to their methods of, of looting the place. And now they're very much delighted to have him as the president. Absolutely. Very interesting analysis, Patrick. Now, if I could just get your uh, perspective on what I had been uh, referencing in the pri in the prior question regarding the landless peasant movement and the shack dwellers movement and some of these other grassroots formations, uh, to what extent are they organizing and expanding or potentially contracting these days? What is their political orientation and where do they fit into this very complex political puzzle uh, moving forward now? Well, it is very interesting. I should have mentioned that not only was Ramaphosa in the 1970s a major student uh, leader and in the 80s the leader of the mine workers, I first met him when he was the Soweto uh, Committee of Ten and uh, Soweto um, sort of community activist uh, uh, leader. And he, along with uh, uh, a half dozen other top trade unionists, uh, helped to build what we call the civic movement. Uh, and that was the urban social movements, particularly about 30 years ago, where they're very, very strong and made the uh, townships no-go areas. And, and Ramaphosa was living in Soweto at the time, played an exemplary role in uh, building up militancy in these communities. So it is quite ironic that uh, the Maracana uh, massacre partly occurred because of the desperation of the mine workers who were living in shacks. Um, mostly, though, the, the shack dwellers of South Africa, probably about a, a third of the urban population, are uh, poorly organized. One of the exceptions is Durban where there's a group, Abishlali Basim Jandolo, which has operated uh, occasionally with great brilliance since 2005. The Landless Peoples Movement uh, rose up uh, briefly in 2000 to 2002, and then by 2003 had been divided and conquered by the ANC. Uh, but there are plenty of other urban movements as well. Um, the, the rural side, as I said, is a little bit uh, less active. But if you uh, uh, do any of the protest mapping searches that you can find on the internet these days, there's many of them out there, but the most sophisticated come from the University of Johannesburg Center for Social Change, um, and that's easily found on, on, on the web. You'll find um, thousands uh, of protests per year, and many of them are about uh, what's called service delivery, which are uh, the water, electricity, sanitation, 
street lights, roads, clinics, uh, sometimes local schools. And the very poor quality of these or the lack of access, the overpricing of the services uh, regularly generate protests. And typically what happens is um, after going through a long process of, of trying to, uh, to get the problems fixed, a community group will emerge and sometimes call itself the, the, the crisis committee of what, whichever township, and then they will go to their municipality and demand change. The dilemma is they are doing this all across the country, but without a national organization. So they tend often to uh, rise up in their particular locales, have a major protest. They typically would, would burn tires on the road, in Cape Town, they began to throw excrement at politicians in their cars as they were coming through. Uh, very famous incidents there. So the tactics can be very militant, uh, even to the extent of burning down municipal property, uh, reflecting that rage. Uh, sometimes they even become xenophobic at times when the more right-wing elements decide that, that they want to blame a local Somali shopkeeper or Zimbabwean uh, immigrant workers. Um, so we've had major upsurges of xenophobia in the working class. But the dilemma is that none of these uh, protests, which generally I think are, you know, have progressive aims of redistribution and decent uh, livelihoods for people in, in, uh, in these townships, uh, they've not been well connected. Uh, and unlike uh, 30 years ago, where there was a, a national civic movement led by the likes of Cyril Ramaphosa, these movements have been usually put down. And it's partly because of the ability of the ANC to stop a big challenge coming from the left that has taken a national form. And that's maybe the biggest tragedy of the recent period is that with the potential for uh, landless people's movements, for shack dwellers, for the other urban township community groups, for now uh, the students, the tertiary, the, the university students have had a great movement. They, they won uh, a few weeks ago called Fees Must Fall to get uh, free uh, university education. But there are, of course, plenty of other student movements. And then, of course, the big labor movements, especially the, the metal workers and a new group with the food and allied workers who have joined them. The uh, new South African Federation of Trade Unions launched about a year ago, which uh, will now begin to contest COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions. COSATU has um, around 1.3 million members and SAFTU has 800,000. There are a couple of other union federations. Um, and just like on the mines where in Maracana, the National Union of Mine Workers lost its uh, loyalty from uh, ordinary mine workers and a new union, the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union, led by Joseph Matunjwa, came in. We've also seen um, lots of other uh, trade unions begin to move to the left. And Irvin Jim, the head of the National Union of Metal Workers, which is indeed is the, the largest union, about 350,000 members, uh, has uh, tried very strongly now to push for um, a left union movement and possibly a workers' party perhaps in time for the election next year, although I don't think they'll have enough of an infrastructure to do very much. But um, that will be another uh, part of this left, very diverse, quite chaotic left scene here, um, that the trade unionists will, I think, very quickly find themselves in opposition. The very first conflict with Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, it's, it's not just over the legacy of Marikana, but it's over his... Um, uh, desire to see the right to strike weakened. He wants there to be a, a, an open ballot before any strike. And that's about to go to the legislative stage. So I think we're going to see quite a battle over unions, just as you have in the United States there, their right to, to really be uh, strong, independent trade unions.
Yes, indeed. Uh, much more struggle to be to be uh, to be had. But um, we're running up against the clock. So why don't we jump to a break uh, on the other side of the break? I want to continue an analysis of the domestic politics uh, ahead of the elections next year, particularly talking about the the EFF, but also the uh well, uh, the other party, the DA, the Democratic Alliance, and what they represent. And then from there, I want to broaden the discussion a bit into some international issues. But uh, let's take a break. So I'm chatting with Patrick Bond. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We will be right back. Radio. I'm chatting with Patrick Bond. So much more to discuss. Uh, Patrick is, of course, a wealth of information. I highly recommend his forthcoming book, City of Rascals, The Uneven Development of Durban. That'll be out in September. And when I say recommend it, I mean because I recommend Patrick's work in general, not because I've read it yet. But uh, also, of course, uh, Bricks, an anti-capitalist critique a couple of years ago. Very important work, particularly in uh, examining some of the uh, financial and political implications of the development of the, for lack of a better word, non-Western burgeoning, you know, if not alliance, then certainly formation of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Lots of important questions there. But returning to our conversation, Patrick, we were kind of uh, leaving off with some of the domestic political forces. And I want to give a little bit of background and a little bit of analysis on the uh, economic freedom fighters. We mentioned earlier Julius Malema, uh, formerly of the ANC Youth League, uh, Malema leading the EFF. Is this organization, which has really only come around in the last few years, is this an organization that is, let's say, preparing itself to challenge for power, 
or is this something else? Because, you know, one day you'll hear a quote from Malema where it sounds like, well, gee, this guy really does think that he's he's going to challenge for power. And then the next day it kind of devolves from there. So give us a little bit of a sense about the EFF uh, and its political aspirations. And do those aspirations occur independently or is EFF looking for partners in a coalition? Uh, what's your read of the EFF? It's a party that doesn't have a strong... Um base in any of the trade unions, although very clearly from all the discussions I've had with, with metal workers, uh, shop stewards, they're, they're very favorable to Malema's rhetoric. Um, its base, if you will, is the um, frustrated um, uh, urban uh, middle class and as well as a, a aspiring middle class, as well as the uh, massive unemployed. And particularly, they've got strong uh, regional uh, bases in the area around Maracana, the northwest province, as well as the site where Limpopo, uh, it's Limpopo province where Malema comes from. Um, the dilemma for these guys is that they had really needed uh, Zuma to stay in power to continue to uh, see the ANC degenerate and lose support. The same for the center right, the Democratic Alliance. So with Ramaphosa in power, they're uh, currently, um, as, as far as I can tell, without having had any uh, deep discussions with, with their members, their leaders, um, they're searching. And that means, for example, uh, this week they've threatened to end an alliance that allowed uh, the Democratic Alliance to run one of the cities. Uh, so they're throwing into question uh, the fifth largest city, Port Elizabeth, uh, and whether the DA continues to run that city. They may do that. The threat is that they could do that for Johannesburg, the largest city, and for Pretoria, the capital city. Um, they also are um, driving forward with an alliance uh, with ANC this week to make uh, expropriation without compensation legal and part of a constitutional order to replace the willing seller, willing buyer, as we've already mentioned. Now, these um, are, in my understanding, fairly um, rapid tactical rep responses to a, a, a new political terrain. I don't think they represent a sort of major new shift for the EFF. They're a strongly principled party. They call themselves Marxist, Leninist, Fanonist. They're running uh, in the last election about 8% support, but I'm guessing it would probably be 10% by the time of the next election. And they are extremely good at finding hot uh, button issues to protest. So they were particularly good at disrupting parliament under Jacob Zuma's rule. They refused to recognize him. They were the first to point him out as being corrupt uh, again and again. They're the first to really unveil the extent to which the Guptas had penetrated the state. And they regularly went to court as well. They have an extremely good uh, lawyer there, uh, the, the chairperson, uh, Dali Mpofu. And I always put a lot of, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, faith in their uh, gut feeling because Malem is a, a genius. He's, he's politically quite brilliant to see um, having been kicked out of the ANC, which normally would mean oblivion, but he's really built up the, the major left opposition party where there was quite a lot of oxygen. Nobody was really breathing on it. And it may be that if there's a workers' party, the unions will formally... Uh, join that and then maybe in some sort of alliance in 2019, put a, a very strong red flag up there for um, uh, for a socialist South Africa. But no, I don't think there's any chance of him coming to power in any uh, meaningful way, aside from perhaps helping the ANC from time to time, uh, but and then in the uh, two major cities helping the DA. So as I say, it's fluid. We're not sure what the political winds will blow uh, in the next year before the election, but uh, Julius Malema will be... Uh, 
determining the course as best he can. He, he does it extremely well. You know, one of the interesting things about Malema, though, and, and this comes up time and again when I've spoken with uh, uh, comrades from Africa and, and, and just observers around the world, including uh, some of our um, uh, black radical friends here in the United States who follow South African politics, that Malema, on the one hand, does talk a radical game, and he oftentimes backs it up with action. At the very same time, though, he's also very quick to compromise with some of the forces that others might not be so willing to compromise on. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, he entered into an alliance with the DA, which to a large extent and to a lot of people still does represent very much kind of white uh, centrist you know, values, as it were, not not necessarily upholding apartheid anymore, but certainly not uh, envisioning a radically transformed South African future, one in which, uh, you know, black South Africans really do kind of uh, uh, make the decisions and so forth. So I'm just wondering, is there a tension there in terms of Malema's support? Are there some people who see some of the decisions that he's made and compromises that he's made as maybe seeing him as somewhat disingenuous, cynical, and so forth? Or does Malema's reputation remain more or less untarnished? Well, I think it's um, uh, fascinating on the racial front because Malema is acutely aware that he doesn't want to be seen as being uh, in alliance with a white-dominated party. It has become more complex because after uh, being run by whites until uh, around 2014, there's been a new leader, a very eloquent uh, centrist uh, liberal from Soweto named Musi Mamani. And Musi Mamani is um, a young man uh, running this center-right party. Uh, there is a black mayor of Johannesburg, Herman Mashaba, a black businessman. Um, they've just actually uh, begun the process of firing the Cape Town mayor, Patricia de Lille, a, a black woman. Um, so you don't, uh, although the, the white uh, provincial leader in, in the Western Cape, the former party leader, Helen Zilla, um, and the uh, mayor of Port Elizabeth, uh, Athol Trollope. Those are two whites at the top of this party. Um, also the main whip in the parliament, John Steinhuysen. It still feels like it's a non-racial uh, project for the DA, that they're bringing a black middle class in uh, more forcefully to politics, and this is the vehicle. It's not as explicit as it had been in the past that this is a party of white monopoly capital. Um, so it's a very interesting dilemma because certainly uh, the DA um, is a very dubious ally if you're on the left because they're a centrist neoliberal party. And the way they're running Johannesburg uh, really reflects that with, with uh, a bit of xenophobia and uh, a lot of sort of corporate policies in place now. The, um, the dilemma for Julius Malema is that you want to get rid of the ANC and one way to do it is to get them out of power because if they're in power, they have the patronage systems and continue to reproduce their power. And that's the justification for getting rid of the ANC here in Johannesburg and in Pretoria. So Malema says, yeah, I want to get rid of the ANC, so I'll stick with the DA in these two places, but now I want to get rid of the DA in Port Elizabeth because that's where they're run by a white guy. So you can see it's an exceptionally complicated uh, political chess game that he's playing that involves white pieces and black pieces moving all around the board. But the sense you're getting is that from below, he's managed to take his 8%, uh, including a lot of very talented cadres. Uh, there is you know, always a, a discussion about whether um, it's a top-heavy group with, say, four or five very, very sharp guys and then people following them. And what he's also trying to do, I think, a reason not to try to take power or be in power is to keep building this cadreship. So in each one of the provinces, in each one of the cities, they are building up this uh, group of 
of uh, young leadership. And I have actually, I'm quite impressed with them. I'm by no means a member or any sort of uh, fellow traveler, but when you look at the stage, they've helped to shift the debate uh, on the national political stage uh, to the left quite forcefully and will regularly raise questions of nationalization. When they need to be raised, we'll regularly question people like Ramaphosa on these uh, you know, uh, unpatriotic financial maneuvers. So I'd like to see them continue to rise and perhaps at the 2024 period when the rest of the left has got its act together, uh, we might be able to see a much stronger push uh, against the ANC from the left. Yeah, certainly. One of the really interesting things about Malema and the EFF is that they're the ones probably more than anyone that I've seen who really do kind of uh, bring up a lot of the issues that uh, were kind of the bedrock founding principles uh, of the Freedom Charter, right? Things like mine nationalization and land uh, redistribution and these things which, you know, today are seen as wildly radical, but were uh, to a large extent part of the foundation of the modern South Africa. Well, that's correct, Eric. And, and your reference is to a 1955 African National Congress document that was put together with uh, loving care by uh, tens of thousands of peoples in all sorts of uh, settings across the country and uh, became a sort of a banned document. It does call for nationalization or specifically for the, um, the wealth of the uh, mines, banks and monopoly capital shall be shared. Now, um, uh, the reason that uh, Julius Malema was thrown out of the ANC in 2012 was because he insisted that those policies be brought back uh, to the front of the ANC's agenda. And the man probably most responsible for throwing him out, not just Jacob Zuma, but Cyril Ramaphosa. And this was just at the time of Marikana and uh, Julius Malema was organizing in that area. That was one of the reasons that the local police leader, um, uh, Brigadier General Mbamba, actually was on record saying, uh, we don't want um, Julius Malema to come into Ramaphosa's territory, because that'll be political trouble. And was, she was very explicit. That was why the massacre, uh, you know, had to happen. That's why they had to stop that wildcat strike uh, on August 16, 2012. So yes, this is an exceptional uh, character, Malema, with a strong progressive politics. They're not just using uh, the standard Marx and Lenin. Many of them were in the Communist Party before, but um, also Franz Fanon and that sense of bringing in a decoloniality to this to this discussion. I should add that the Communist Party has just been re-empowered. Even though Ramaphosa is you know, an extremist capitalist, he has had an alliance with the Communists and with the Congress of South African trade unions, Kasatu. So we've just seen the um, uh, head of the Communist Party, Bladen Zamandi, brought back into the cabinet this week. Uh, we've seen other communists uh, now having, I think, a lot more space to uh, try to say we want to get rid of the the residues of the Guptas uh, and, uh, and and rebuild this big ANC, what they call National Democratic Revolution. And yeah, often that's expressed as kind of two stages. So first you get rid of apartheid, and then you go for the second stage, which is economic justice. And of course, they're now going to argue, well, we've had a little interruption in, in stage one we were able to achieve in 1994, apartheid is gone, but stage two has been interrupted by, because of the Guptas and this uh, kleptocracy that emerged. So we've had to have a detour. Instead of going directly to socialism, we now needed to have an alliance with Ramaphosa, endorse him and, 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 and kick out the Zuptas. Others on the left would say, this is uh, yet another detour. You're probably going to reinforce neoliberal nationalism and give it a left front and uh, confuse your members more. And this is the kind of debate we're having here on the left. 
uh, people outside the SACP. The SACP still has probably over 100,000 members. We, we don't know for sure, but they certainly have a very strong institutional presence and very talented people uh, have about four uh, ministers and another couple of dozen members of parliament. So it's a, it's a very uh, conflicted party. I, I would say quite a schizophrenic communist party. I want to ask you a, a little bit more about the DA and specifically Maimani, because uh, in in some of my analysis of him going back to when he kind of rose to power a couple of years ago to to head the DA, the Democratic Alliance. Uh, speaking with some people in South Africa, they described him, and I realize this is a generalization and perhaps overly simplified, but to put it in terms that would be easy enough to understand, uh, in many ways that he was South Africa's Obama, that he was a very articulate, very uh, well-spoken, but also very shrewd and very politically savvy uh, and telegenic individual who at the at a very basic level didn't really represent any substantive change from the neoliberal policies that came before him and in many ways that he was kind of you know for lack of a better word he was the black face of a white party and in many ways that was uh you know Obama what became the, the the black face of the empire and so I'm just I'm wondering not about the comparison with Obama but what I'm wondering is to what extent is Maimane's reputation today uh, either tarnished or enhanced by the last couple of years? And to what extent is he really um, open to challenge both within his party and from outside? Well, I think he's actually uh, going to be in charge for quite a long time. He has, a, uh, as far as I can tell, not knowing much about that uh, party, uh, a very solid uh, grasp on power. He's been able to push out Helen Zilla and then this last couple of weeks pushed out the mayor of Cape Town. He'll replace her with somebody probably more amenable. Um, and I think this is uh, one of the reflections that um, we are seeing a blurring of the, the, the race class line at the top. Uh, so although the black billionaires, people like Sol Ramaphosa or um, Patrice Matsepe, who's another mining magnet, still have their ties in the ANC, there's certainly a large number of, of uh, black diamonds, as the nickname has it, of rich blacks, who would then um, move into the into the democratic alliance? Uh, likewise, a lot of uh, white capitalists have have moved out of South Africa. The, what used to be the Democratic Party, the Democratic Alliance's predecessor uh, in the 90s, was very much the sort of Anglo-American corporations uh, house political party. But Anglo then moved. So the Oppenheimer family, the big De Beers empire, those are basically London right now, and there's not much left in. South Africa of a sort of highly visible white uh, capitalist manipulation of the system. It happens in a much different way, which is just um, the sort of general business milieu is neoliberal. It's brutal. As I said, when you have the most corrupt corporate elites in the world, their mouthpieces, the Business Day newspaper, the Financial Mail magazine, um, the various TV shows, and, and even the public radio that push the sort of common sense line that we have to have a, a, a lower budget deficit. We have to be more open to the world. Globalization is good for us. And all the evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding, I mean, it's meant that, for example, this last week, we had a budget that increased the VAT, the value added tax, which um, there's a little bit of debate about it, but it, you know, it was a tax that hits poor people harder. They didn't increase corporate taxes, uh, which are half of what they were in 1994. Um, they have relaxed exchange controls um, 
even more just this last week uh, by roughly 50 billion dollars can now flee the country now that couldn't before and all these ways um, you have to kind of get a sense of a, of a country that's under the thumb of of a long neoliberal reign of power that Mandela introduced and legitimated the old apartheid regime was moving in that direction but it was that sense that um, we've got political freedom comrades and we need economic freedom and that comes through uh, you know, our friends in the IMF and the World Bank. It's a, it's like what happened in Eastern Europe in a way, right? Uh, with just a, a complete lobotomization uh, and even the sort of basic patriotic uh, and sovereignty uh, struggles to, to, for example, keep our clothing, textile, uh, appliances, electronics, industries uh, has failed. We, we were losing more or less all of the uh, even the basic steel industry uh, now under massive threat from Chinese dumping of cheap steel. So it's a tragic situation which uh, needn't have happened had we not been under the under the thumb of neoliberalism. I think whether or not you have a DA, a democratic alliance in power, it's the force of those ideas, the neoliberal ideas that the ANC swallowed, you know, hook, line and sinker from the early 1990s that is our biggest problem. And has, you know, it's, it's, it's extreme, uh, Eric. Uh, we have, uh, as I said, the most corrupt corporate class, as PricewaterhouseCoopers has just again affirmed. We have the highest inequality in the world, both in income and amongst major countries, as Credit Suisse has just affirmed in wealth. And we also have the angriest working class. So the World Economic Forum every year studies competitiveness, and they say, how are your workers? Are they placid and friendly and collaborative, or are they angry and confrontational and the South African working class since 2012 out of 140 countries or so has been number one the, the last seven years. So these are the kinds of things that are that are really important for us to say what a laboratory for class struggle but how impressive that the ANC has kept the lid on it um, and the neoliberal conditions get worse and worse each year. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting things for me, too, in thinking about that is, on the one hand, it's a great blessing that you have a militant and an and, and angry working class that's prepared to struggle for their interests. On the other hand, uh, it also raises the specter of potential manipulation, manipulation of the working class with kinds of rhetoric that may ultimately backfire. And, and one of the things that I'm getting at is... Uh, the Democratic Alliance, uh, seeing the Democratic Alliance as maybe not a desirable alternative, but a realistic alternative. So, for instance, I can imagine a sort of a, for lack of a better word, triangulation strategy in which the, the DA with Maimane fronting the party saying that we're against the ANC and their corruption and their bankrupt policies and so forth. We're also against the extremist elements of the EFF and and some of the others on the far left, we're the realistic party, the party of pragmatism, the party that's going to bring economic prosperity. To what extent is that the kind of rhetoric that the DA uses? And uh, if so, uh, might it be successful given the economic uh, situation in the country? Well, um, that's exactly the right reading of it. And the question of whether it's successful is uh, now being tested in Cape Town because there's a water crisis that's partly the three-year drought and what we see is a sort of uh, warnings of inclement climate change that will create water crises across uh, our cities and across the country. It's a fairly water-scarce country to begin with. But this has been a DA-led municipality, Cape Town, the second biggest city, probably the most glamorous city in the, in, in the third world, 
um, for, for rich people, a sort of little uh, film industry and uh, beautiful scenery. Um, and it's running out of water, quite literally. There's a, a, a date, June 11th, where they expect that unless there are rains uh, in the meantime, the winter rains start in uh, May, uh, June, there, people will actually not have water in their taps. They'll have to go and collect water from uh, water tankers uh, brought in. So this is a reflection partly that the DA hasn't been a very good manager, uh, even on, on its own terms. This is a city with water apartheid where, where black people in the townships have been suffering the same day zero water shortage uh, for their whole lives there. But uh, for the whites, for some of the mixed race areas that are now going to be faced without having um, water, it does reflect a, a deep despondency about DA rule. Here in Johannesburg, it would be the same because the, um, the mayor here hasn't sorted out many of the major problems and there are fiscal stresses. Um, there's, uh, as I said, a sort of tendency by the mayor to promote a, um, a kind of uh, Horatio Alger uh, bottom-up uh, lift yourself by your bootstraps kind of ideology, which he himself got rich on as a as a hair care products uh, salesperson. And so Herman Mashaba is his name. He would represent the next of these, I think, mayors that will kind of go down in infamy for not running the place very well. Look, we're, le we're talking about a country with such extreme uh, economic problems because of the reliance on mining, uh, the very, very um, 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 concentrated corporate sector, where there's very little space for black business to rise up. I mean, it really is a, a white business um, oligopoly and in industry after industry. And so the frustrations are intense and the protests that I've mentioned about service delivery also have a much deeper um, uh, uh, root, which is where Malema taps into it, which is this frustration Franz Fanon described in The Wretched of the Earth, in which a sort of barrier is placed on the potential um, accumulation by, by uh, a new group of people and because of the lock-in by the old. And in a place like Zimbabwe, it really did explode in 2000, especially in the rural areas. And I think it could well explode in this country as well. What I uh, appreciate is that the various civic groups, these trade unions, groups like the economic freedom fighters are trying to take this anger and this energy into a, a pretty healthy policy space by saying, we do need to nationalize. We do need to have uh, a social control of our of our assets. Uh, and so it's uh, it's much to the left of your usual social democratic rhetoric, even your Bernie Sanders. I mean, this this would be a, a, a site to see as an experiment in whether uh, the end uh, stage of neoliberalism with probably its most finest, you know, its, its most effective practitioner, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, cannot deliver the goods and then uh, we do see a new stage of a left that can come together in the period ahead. So I remain very optimistic. This is a city, uh, Johannesburg, with extraordinary infrastructure of the left um, in terms of um, unions and social movements, uh, very radical NGOs, a very strong intelligentsia in the two main universities. And uh, having just moved here a couple of years ago from Durban, um, I've uh, found a new energy. And I, I suspect that this is the kind of thing that will spread uh, as the contradictions heighten in the period ahead. Very interesting. The idea of South Africa as a almost a, a laboratory or a test case, I never really thought of it that way, but it makes sense to me and uh, certainly does uh, give one a bit of uh, positive energy, at least in thinking about South Africa. Now, I want to broaden our discussion a little bit in the time remaining. We're, we're running a bit long here, but that's okay. Um, I want to first 
give a little bit of an African perspective or a regional perspective, and then I want to go global. Um, one of the very interesting things for me in watching this drama unfold around Jacob Zuma and Zuma ultimately being ousted and Ramaphosa taking his place is that this is happening at a time when multiple long-standing uh, leaders in Africa have also fallen by the wayside. Obviously, we've already mentioned Mugabe in Zimbabwe, who was more or less pushed aside in what could be called a transition or soft coup or whatever you want to call it within the ZANU-PF, uh, members of his party, particularly close to the military, which more or less negotiated him out of office for various reasons, including a power struggle internally within the party and a very weak opposition. Uh, so that happened in Zimbabwe, just on the other side of the border. Similarly, we've seen just in recent weeks the resignation of the president in Ethiopia, a very important development as well, one that has implications both for the Horn of Africa, but also related with countries like China and elsewhere. And uh, in Kenya, there's a political crisis with the current administration and their opponents as well, kind of the country being divided. So in that regard, are we seeing a, a, a transitional moment in Africa? Or, I mean, are we just seeing, you know, a couple of different governments collapsing and it being more or less coincidental? How do you read the changes in Africa, broadly speaking, and does it inform what we may see in the coming months and years? Well, yes, I think it's a, it's a good observation. Uh, I'd like to even term this Africans uprising because we've had a, a myth, uh, especially between uh, about 2006 and 2013, 14, called Africa Rising, which was based on this commodity super cycle. It reminds me when I uh, first moved to the continent in 1989, uh, as a new wave of democratization occurred, um, and quite a number of countries went through formal elections, some for the very first time, uh, one party states, for example, in Zambia, uh, overthrown by an electoral uh, process. But it ran out of steam. And so we had from sort of the mid 90s till 2011, um, stable, um, basically uh, kleptocracies and uh, undemocratic regimes in most of the continent. But 2011 was really the, the change uh, in which North Africa, especially uh, starting in Tunisia and then Egypt, a little bit in Libya before it was uh, turned into chaos. Uh, they uh, had uh, overthrows of, in Tunisia's case, the Ben Ali, in Egypt's the Mubarak regimes. And then that really um, spread throughout the continent. You can see an, an amazing increase in protests as measured in, for example, Auchan's France Press or uh, Reuters reports. And these are being tracked by various different groups. Even the Pentagon has a has a group called the, the Minerva Project, where they use University of Texas and, and Sussex uh, University researchers to track this unrest. And it is quite impressive. And it's going on today in Togo and in um, we had it last year in Gambia. Tunisia is a hot spot again. Um, it's going on in many places. Um, and I suspect uh, we will start seeing more coherence, more democratic movements coming up. In the case of Ethiopia, it was uh, slightly more of an ethnic um, group uh, protesting uh, a minority uh, regime and the minority uh, ruler, Desikin, couldn't hold power anymore. Um, in South Africa, we haven't had a, uh, an ethnic spin on this, but we might well see um, the period ahead uh, with uh, disappointing uh, economics uh, and potentially remobilization of the left uh, as being th that sort of, uh, you know, a, a left uh, surge. And I, I would say more generally where uh, a country like South Africa 
with these extreme contradictions and uh, large trade unions and uh, a lot of confusion because the biggest union movement and the Communist Party support the neoliberal nationalist uh, government. Um, but this is an inexorable process to try to find a new ideology that will emerge. I, I think it will be based on uh, this uh, Fanonian uh, push that's trying to throw out the old leaders. And I'm very encouraged. Each of the continent, uh, continental meetings I've been at, I was with Samir Amin, our greatest political economist here um, in Dakar at his, uh, at his home uh, a few weeks ago. And the spirit that you see in a place like Senegal um, with uh, some of the, the, the strongest intellectuals in a network called CODESRI, the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa, brings me back to some of those older uh, sensibilities uh, after a long period in which neoliberalism has been dominant, uh, that we could see uh, a more uh, healthy period of the left rising in Africa along with all of these grassroots insurgent protests. You know, one of the one of the other uh, common threads that I just want to bring up, and this kind of opens up the final stage of our discussion here. Um, I mentioned South Africa, of course, Zimbabwe, and Ethiopia, and maybe to a lesser extent Kenya, although Kenya is certainly part of it as well. One of the things that connects all, all of those countries is a very, very, very close and very um, expansive relationship, economic relationship with China. China is a major player in Ethiopia, building railroads, uh, dam projects, hydroelectric projects, so forth. Uh, certainly in South Africa, it's, it's well-known. Obviously, China's long since been a benefactor for Zimbabwe, having backed uh, ZANU-PF for, for many, many years, going back to the power struggle between Mugabe and Joshua Nkomo, his rival. Uh, so we do see China as kind of this looming giant on the horizon for all of Africa, but in particular, these countries that are now going through these political transitions. So can you speak a little bit about whether or not that's just a coincidence, or if the role of China is, in some sense, having political ramifications in these countries? Well, it is. And uh, in the Zimbabwe transition in November, in which Mugabe was pushed out of power in a coup, um, there was a very explicit visit by the main coup leader, um, whose name is Constantino Chiwenga. He went to China and uh, met the head of the Chinese military and, in effect, got permission. And Emerson Mangagwa, uh, the uh, former deputy, who's now the president of Zimbabwe, was very explicitly celebrated in the um, uh, Global Times, the main Chinese mouthpiece to the West. And I think that is one reflection that the uh, old myth that China just... Uh, does economic activity with these countries, doesn't intervene in politics, um, has to be reconsidered. Um, the dilemma, though, is that I don't think China has, uh, as much as it appears uh, on offer through these mega project uh, strategies, because they do look very much like the old uh, colonial and the neo-colonial uh, extraction systems in which, yes, there are railroads, the one from Djibouti, where China now has its first military base in Africa, to Addis Ababa is all about um, the ability to take containers full of uh, Chinese products or products now made in Ethiopia. They have the new sweatshops of Africa or in Addis um, out to the, um, to, the, to the port. The same for Lamu in Kenya, hotly contested port, or um, Bagamoyo in Tanzania. Um, and these are the main port sites in what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, in which China is trying to push west. Um, it's doing it partly through sea routes, 
uh, and hoping to find new ports that are allied, for example, in Pakistan. But um, it's uh, largely, from my standpoint, um, going to be constrained by uh, the uh, commodity overload that we've already got. There are a few exceptions. Copper is an exception. Uh, but in steel and aluminium and in all kinds of uh, metal sectors, we've seen a, a, an overproduction problem. And a lot of what China is trying to do is deal with its overproduction by uh, engaging in what uh, my PhD supervisor, David Harvey, calls a spatial fix, uh, which is to sort of move your overaccumulated capital out. And this time, instead of building lots of empty cities, it'll be building to the West. And for that, there has been an uptick in commodity prices, about 10% since the low point two years ago. Um, and there's hope that the Belt and Road would bring Africa into that Eastern orbit even more. However, the reality is that many of these mega projects are stalled and it's very hard to get a rate of return. For example, on a new railroad from Mombasa, Kenya to Nairobi, uh, it's a huge debt that the Kenyans have taken on. Um, or the biggest single project in world history is the proposed $100 billion Inga hydropower project. It's a big dam on the Congo River, uh, twice as big as the uh, Three Gorges Dam, the biggest dam to date in, in China. Um, and those projects are stalled. Uh, likewise, here in South Africa, a big project to export 18 billion tons of coal with Chinese locomotives, thanks to a Chinese loan, or um, a $20 billion expansion of the Durban Harbor, they're also stalled. So I don't think we should overemphasize how much China is grabbing Africa without looking at the big macro question. What is the world economy going to allow? And with all the volatility we've been seeing just in recent weeks, but the general deglobalization tendencies, the lower levels of FDI, the lower levels of trade, the lower levels of, of cross-border financial flows, um, from about 2007, when these peaked in relation to world GDP, they've been all on a declining trend. It seems to me we shouldn't be um, celebrating or fearing China so much as trying to prepare for a period ahead in which much more uh, self-reliant economic strategies would be adopted instead. It's a very interesting point you make, Patrick, because, you know, I think that in in one sense, that final point you made just about not, you know, condemning or condoning, but simply trying to understand what China is doing, that's something that uh, Deborah Braudigam, who's well respected as one of the foremost scholars on China's uh, economic activity in Africa, she highlights that repeatedly in her book, The Dragon's Gift and other works of hers. But I think she's a lot more pro-China and a lot more... Uh, supportive of a lot of the initiatives that China has taken on in Africa. But it does raise this question about the role of not just China, but the BRICS, broadly speaking, because, you know, we've kind of seen over the course of the last decade, decade and a half, certainly in the last 10 years, uh, BRICS kind of emerge as for lack of a better word, a brand. It's 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 the anti-Western, anti-US brand. It's the thing that is that you're that that you're supposed to kind of accept with open arms because it's going to create a counterbalance globally, one that can balance out the obviously rampant imperialism of the United States, but more broadly speaking, the global economic architecture with the United States, Wall Street, and London primarily uh, at the head, that BRICS is supposed to counterbalance that and counteract that. And 
I personally, I have to say, I, I certainly subscribe to that view very up until relatively recently. But, you know, Patrick, seeing what we saw in Brazil uh, with the, uh, for lack of a better word, overthrow of the Rousseff government and it's and put in its place a far right wing Goldman Sachs aligned, Wall Street aligned government under Temer. Similarly, in uh, we, we, we've seen machinations in South Africa. We've seen a rightward lurch in India. Obviously, we know about Russia. What we've seen over the last couple of years, to my mind, I think has done a tremendous amount to undermine this you know, public relations strategy of the BRICS being this great shining hope for the global South. So can you talk a little bit, not just about the BRICS, but about how the branding and marketing of the BRICS up until quite recently, if that's being undermined as I laid it out? Well, absolutely. <clears throat> the dilemma for the BRICS is that they um, did come to uh, the world's attention, partly because a Goldman Sachs banker, Jim O'Neill, said this is the, these are the building BRICS of the 21st century, the, the fast-growing and uh, you know, most powerful uh, countries moving from uh, the periphery to the semi-periphery to the, to the core, uh, if you will. But um, if you look at precisely at what they've done to do to make these reforms, you won't be impressed. I mean, let's just take three examples quickly. The International Monetary Fund has been a source of great complaint because the U.S. has had 17.5% uh, of the vote and veto power. Um, and so there's been an attempt to give more voice, as they say, uh, higher levels of uh, voting share to uh, South countries. And indeed, between 2010 and 2015, these were negotiated, and finally the U.S. Congress agreed in 2015. But let's look at the outcome. China increased its power by 37%, uh, India by 23 um, uh, Brazil by 11 Russia by 8 uh, So four of the five BRICs did increase their share of the, of the IMF substantially. The total, in fact, goes up to about 14.5%, not quite 15, uh, that veto mark. Um, but who lost? Even South Africa lost. We lost 21% of our voting power in the IMF. Not that I would trust our uh, delegate to actually vote in any kind of reasonable way. Um, the Nigerians lost 41, the Venezuelans lost 41. Uh, across the board, uh, the BRIC, or BRIC countries, not BRICs in this case, uh, are able to stand higher at the IMF table because they're standing on the heads of Africans and Latin Americans and a few Asians uh, who lost their voting power. Um, and I would have thought that now that they've got a little bit more voting power, they could propose a new managing director instead of a corrupt French finance minister. I say that uh, because Christine Lagarde, who's been uh, the head of the IMF since the prior French finance minister, um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, was kicked out after his uh, notorious uh, uh, Viagra overdoses in 2011. She then was convicted of corruption in December 2016. But the BRICS, with their newly empowered uh, voting power, you know, actually voted her back in and, and voted her, gave her a vote of confidence the very day that she was convicted in Paris of corruption with the Adidas head, uh, Bernard Tapie, who'd given 400 million euros to uh, the French Conservative Party that, that she kind of forgave. Sorry, I should have said it more precisely. Uh, she gave a tax break to him after he contributed a massive amount to their uh, campaign. So I think to have a, a corrupt uh, French finance minister um, running the IMF, but with the BRICS very much part of it, reflects that actually the BRICS, when they go into the hinterlands, they're perfectly happy to have IMF structural adjustment against little countries who then have to play the export, export, export game. 
But Patrick, uh, Pat Patrick, mm-hmm. and I just want to play devil's advocate for a second yes. and get you to explain to me. Yes, the BRICS countries or BRIC countries may have uh, increased their share in the IMF and are increasingly able to throw their weight around there. But we also hear so much about the BRICS Development Bank, about the other uh, financial institutions that are emerging under the auspices of BRICS that are supposed to act as a counterweight to the IMF. So one could, you know, one could make the argument that, well, I don't know that we should crucify the Chinese and the Russians and the Indians for wanting more influence in the IMF if they're also simultaneously building a development bank that can act as uh, something, you know, an alternative alternative to the IMF. So A, is that a fair way of looking at it? And B, is the BRICS Development Bank and these other new institutions, are they really a counterweight or are they more a complement to the IMF? I'm glad you asked. That was actually the next point because it follows logically that if you have a contingent reserve arrangement of $100 billion, a sort of pool that the BRICS set up in the 2014 summit they had in Brazil, and if that um, requires you let's say we're South Africa, we need to borrow from that pool because we have a debt crisis. This is a very realistic um, scenario. I think within a year, we'll see our $160 billion foreign debt require that kind of external intervention. And the dilemma is that the people who went uh, to Brazil uh, in 2014 to negotiate this are the same people that sit on the board of the IMF. These are the most neoliberal people in our finance ministries and central banks. So the way they designed it, Eric, is that Once you go to the contingent reserve arrangement for a bailout loan, uh, this is the alternative IMF, the CRA it's called, you only get 30% of your quota. In our case, that's $3 billion. Then you need to go to the IMF to get a structural adjustment policy and loan before you can get the other 70%. What this does, Eric, is to strengthen the IMF. It gives them yet more leverage. It gives them a sort of additional weight in uh, making their demands and uh, structuring our economies in the way they see fit. This isn't an alternative and it's an, it's an amplifier. The same for the BRICS New Development Bank, which um, is set up in China and they have done a few, what I would call um, sort of tokenistic uh, uh, renewable energy loans, but they've also made a deal. Uh, their leader, KV Kanath, has met with uh, Jim Yong Kim, the World Bank president, and have got a operative agreement to share staff to share projects, to do co-financing. Um, they're, it's a very small unit. In fact, they have a brand new unit here in, in Santon, uh, the BRICS New Development Bank Africa Regional Branch, which doesn't even have a managing director yet. And so they're really quite reliant on uh, deals of this sort that they're going to do with the World Bank on the World Bank itself. And I would say um, everything I've seen, I mean, the people running the BRICS New Development Bank from South Africa are amongst the most neoliberal uh, bureaucrats I've ever met here. So we're not looking at anything new and different in the world of finance. Let me very quickly add that the trade uh, regime is similar. It was the Nairobi 2015 World Trade Organization Summit, like the Seattle Summit in 1999, if your listeners remember that wonderful moment where people protested. We didn't really have um, a protest movement and the African uh, hosts were not very strong. So what the US and the EU did was to finally agree on ending agricultural subsidies, but they brought in the likes of India and Brazil, and the BRICS kind of went all for it because they have big agro-corporates here in South Africa and certainly Brazil and um, uh, and India and China went along with it, Russia too. So we have a new WTO deal, which basically ends 
food sovereignty. And the third uh, example is in the sphere of climate change, where the very critical decision to end uh, what was called binding emissions cuts uh, in the Kyoto Protocol uh, was made in 2009 in Copenhagen. That was done by Barack Obama. You might remember he barged into a room where uh, China, India, South Africa, and Brazil leadership were meeting, and they did a deal called the Copenhagen Accord. And what the deal meant, uh, as codified in Paris in 2015, is that you can be voluntary in this climate uh, agreement, as Donald Trump showed, you just walk out, no big deal, no accountability, no penalty. Um, also, you get no uh, climate debt. Once you sign on, if you're a victim of climate change, you're not allowed to sue the causes of climate change, the US uh, and now increasingly China uh, has actually the highest absolute emissions rates. Um, and also we saw the introduction of carbon trading and we saw a complete uh, ignoring of air and maritime and military emissions. The BRICS all signed on to these. So what I'm getting at, Eric, is a global governance regime that's still extremely neoliberal where the BRICS have basically uh, joined the head table uh, as a sub-imperial partner to imperialism. And we see that really acutely where the BRICS corporations are just rampaging through the African continent. Uh, they really are uh, much worse. So just one example, the biggest copper mine in Africa is owned by a guy called Anil Agarwal from Vedanta, an Indian company. He bought it for $25 million. And every year he takes 500 million to $1 billion profits and pollutes the landscape, exploits the workers. Exceptional exploitation. He's now uh, buying Anglo-American Corporation. He's the single largest uh, investor in that company now uh, here in South Africa. So these are uh, indications that we're seeing um, a sort of amplification of the worst tendencies uh, under the rubric of BRICS, even though they do have left-wing rhetoric. So when we have a BRICS from below counter summit, which we did, for example, in Hong Kong last September, when the BRICS were meeting in GMN, you'll often find workers' movements, community groups, environmentalists, women's groups, getting together and bemoaning that the BRICS exist in a way that they can somehow portray themselves as an alternative to uh, the world neoliberal, ecologically destructive corporate system, when in reality they're pushing it ever harder. The metabolism of BRICS capitalism is much more intense. And you know, don't take it from me, uh, Xi Jinping himself said it at Davos a year ago, that he was the one wanting to, to push forward with a more free trade regime, more, uh, you know, corporate expansion. Uh, and he was much more worried as uh, it seems the last week or so, he's got uh, some justification of the protectionist tendencies of Donald Trump. So I would say, yeah, the BRICS are actually not any kind of alternative. Um, they represent a sub-imperial uh, politics that are going to strengthen and legitimize imperialism unless we continue to see the sort of protests. You know, China has 150,000 protests a year. India had a, a, a national strike in September 2016 of 180 million workers. Uh, regular protests in Russia and, of course, with, with the uh, Brazilian movement of landless and the workers, the students, and in South Africa, constant protests. This is not a stable situation. And often you'll find uh, governments in these kinds of places talking left so they can walk right or sometimes uh, expressing some grievance about imperialism. In Jacob Zuma's case, uh, he even said he was being poisoned by the West because he brought South Africa into the BRICS. But it's typically that kind of, um, you know, uh, playful rhetoric. Zuma learned his politics in, uh, in Moscow, and they'll often uh, use an anti-imperialist rhetoric when in reality what they're doing is sub-imperialist.
One of the things that was difficult for me to accept about that argument, although I've come around to some degree only because of, uh, well, material reality, what we're observing happening in the world, and you know, but um, one of the things that, that that I think kind of creates a very interesting dichotomy when you think about this is on the one hand, you have all of this evidence about, you know, say Chinese investment and where it's environmentally destructive, whether it's in Ecuador or whether it's in Congo or uh, in, in Tanzania or what have you. At the same time, you know, I'll have I'll have you on the program telling me about, you know, such and such million, you know, tons of coal that the Chinese are looking to, you know, move through South Africa. And then I can pick up a stack of papers next to me and read about how China is by far leading the world in renewable energy development and solar technology development and exporting that internationally. So there is certainly this kind of very interesting uh, dichotomy or juxtaposition, I don't know what we want to call it, between, or maybe it's even a paradox, where the Chinese and uh, the Indians and, and, and others are, in one sense, uh, a force of, you know, sub-imperial investment and all of that, and in another sense, perhaps also progressive investment. And I, I, I just, I wonder, to what extent does that tension really exist, or is it all just a part of the, the broader scope of accumulation? Well, unfortunately, you're right that any um, import of solar technology is uh, inexorably Chinese. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, and, and European um, uh, solar industries are, are very weak in comparison. But um, that's not necessarily what uh, the Chinese are doing here. I would love to see much more uh, solar take over our big coal. Um, unfortunately, it's being done through independent power producers. They are sourcing uh, their solar and their wind uh, turbines uh, to, to a large extent from China. But the dilemma is that when the Chinese are doing the mega projects, the ones that I mentioned, for example, the uh, hydropower in the um, uh, Congo River, it's an extremely destructive uh, project. There's a Berkeley-based group called International Rivers, which has um, a very good website describing what the Inga dam would do and, and the, the Chinese drive to build it is, I think it's going to run out of steam. They probably won't end up doing so. But some of the other projects are very extractive. They just are about uh, ripping out uh, uh, diamonds, for example. The, the worst case might be Zimbabwe, where on the eastern side, there's 15 diamonds that went missing. 13 billion is, uh, according to Robert Mugabe, the then president, uh, disappeared. Two billion maybe you can account for in some way, but very little went to the state uh, fiscus. Uh, the army, including Emerson Mnangagwa, the new president, was very much involved in this looting, but it was certainly a Chinese man, uh, Sam Pa, and Chinese joint ventures. And they basically um, set up systems in, in Zimbabwe just to, to uh, first kill 400 uh, artisanal mine workers who are in those fields in eastern Zimbabwe, uh, and then just take the, the $15 billion away. Uh, so even when Emerson and Mugabe came to power in the coup in November, you could see lots of signs of people, since there's a big cash crisis in Zimbabwe, they use the US dollar, uh, you can get about $5 a day for most of the ATMs maximum. So where's our $15 billion, Emerson and Mugabe, bring it back. And this is one of those reflections where the Chinese um, really have looted and they've set up uh, very uh, dubious relationships with local strongmen to do so. So I think uh, uh, the resistance against uh, Chinese state-owned capital, against uh, the Russians who are trying to sell nuclear weapons, uh, sorry, nuclear energy, not just in South Africa, but in Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Egypt, uh, resistance against these Indian companies, especially coal companies, and Vedanta, 
Brazilian company called Vale is all over Africa and again a big uh, resistance there in uh, uh, Angola and Mozambique, South Africa. There's a big international movement against the Vale. So we're seeing really a bricks from below, if I can put it that way, uh, which reflects these um, social movements, labor, and uh, I think Democrats as well, people who realize that if the Chinese are going to set up an alternative internet with the Russians uh, under the rubric of BRICS, as sometimes is proposed, that may not be any better than the Western-dominated, you know, uh, Alphabet, Google, uh, Microsoft, and uh, Facebook type of operations. They'll still be spying on us at every opportunity, like the NSA, and we need to uh, needing to do some very different things uh, than just simply replace the uh, sort of Chinese and maybe Russian models um, uh, uh, for what we've got now, the Western-dominated systems. There's got to be some way through that doesn't set up an alternative um, that uh, breaks everyone's hearts. I think that's very well said. The last point on that, and I just I really want to get your take on this, because uh, it's one of the things that does concern me in, in one regard. Um, where you have resistance against Chinese investments or Russian investments or Indian or whatever, you're, it's, it's always going to be, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say always, but in, in the vast majority of cases, it's going to be legitimate grievances, local people who don't want to see their waters polluted, their ecosystems destroyed or what have you. At the same time, we also have evidence where the United States uh, will sometimes plant or use groups like that under the auspices of environmentalism or under the auspices of indigenous rights or whatever, in order to stymie the ambitions of the Chinese whom they see as rivals. Uh, there's been uh, allegations of that kind of uh, activity in Nicaragua around the Grand Canal project that the Chinese are looking to build, uh, connecting uh, the the eastern coast with the western coast, We're, uh, basically creating an alternative to the Panama Canal. Similarly, in other large projects uh, in South America and elsewhere, there's been this constant, um, you know, allegation that the United States and certain NGOs based out of the United States, that they use these movements, local peoples, in order to execute a much larger agenda. So I'm wondering, to what extent are some of these, um, for lack of a better word, hotspots really a battleground for broader geopolitical interests at play that maybe are far beyond the scope of what whatever those localized issues might be? Well, sure, and we've seen... Uh the um, NED in uh, places like uh, Venezuela being very destructive. Uh, absolutely, uh, the conditions now are ever more ripe for, uh, I think, a general BDS USA. I've argued that we should see uh, anti-Trump sanctions and um, a, a, you know delegitimization of anything coming out of out of the U.S. government and uh, carbon taxes on any U.S. Uh, exports. Those are the sorts of things that are under discussion. Naomi Klein, for example, has, has argued uh, for more than a year, let's get a global sanctions movement going. And indeed, in Washington in December, we took that up in a big uh, conference at the National Press Club with Institute for Policy Studies. So I'm absolutely with you. But the, the dilemma here is that um, we do actually see um, very, very powerful uh, movements of, of people, sometimes single issue by single issue. Occasionally, they will uh, identify allied governments. So the best example of that is getting free AIDS medicines for, in South Africa, nearly 7 million people are HIV positive, and 4 million of them now get the medicines for free. But until 2004, they were under the control of um, 
the trade-related intellectual property system and the pharmaceutical companies uh, uh, monopoly uh, tyranny on, on intellectual property and they cost so much more ten thousand dollars a year than anyone could afford that we only had a few hundred people getting these medicines so um, the extraordinary expansion which has now raised life expectancy here from 52 uh, 15 years ago to, to 64 today comes because the activists on the ground the treatment action campaign found a good uh, government program in brazil which gave uh, free antiretroviral medicines, but also um, a um, uh, Indian pharmaceutical uh, company called CIPLA, which does generic production with the Brazilian government, would have been that optimal arrangement with activists at the base, finding a sort of alternative to US power. But in the current conjuncture, I'm not sure I'm seeing much of that. And where we desperately need that sort of unity for example, in uh, climate change politics, uh, we're really just seeing the BRICS and the West in a, a effectively a unity that'll drive the planet into um, a, uh, an absolute uh, crisis. Uh, the same for world trade, the same for world finance. And I think it's at that stage that generating more of these links from below as we're going to be doing in Johannesburg in July when the BRICS have their summit here, uh, this is probably one of the ways forward to at least raise consciousness uh, and hopefully find campaigns that do uh, follow a tradition of internationalism and social justice and environmental justice, uh, notwithstanding all of the geopolitical maneuvers that are uh, circling around and making it very difficult indeed. But you're right, uh, at a time when uh, the likes of the Donald Trumps and the Putins are uh, raising the nuclear stakes and when you've got uh, Chinese capital uh, taking so much space around the world. Um, it is often attractive to think that the solutions are going to be in some new arrangement geopolitically. But if we don't get the politics right at the very base level in these countries that are so extremely tense, like South Africa, um, and if we don't see uh, a new left emerge in places like the US and Britain, where we we're beginning to see a, a revived social democracy, we don't have much hope. And I think it's in uh, those spaces that I'd like to direct my gaze. And at that level, um, it's wonderful to have Counterpunch as a source of great information and a place to have these discussions. So uh, thanks very much for having me on the radio show. And thank you so much for coming on. And I just, before you go, I know you got to go and we really need to end it, but I, I cannot have this conversation uh, about South Africa, about Africa, about all of these issues without raising, uh, you know, the, the, the key word, the elephant in the room uh, for somebody from the United States with the grounding in anti-war activism and anti-imperialism. I can't not mention the word AFRICOM. And I think that um, that issue is so central to how we think about uh, Africa and everything that's going on there. So for a long time, I've always kind of seen the rise of AFRICOM as the United States flex its military muscles as a means of counteracting China's flexing of its economic muscles in Africa. So can I just get your comment on that dynamic and whether you would agree with that or maybe add a caveat to that if, you, if, if you'd like? And then secondarily, are we seeing a new, a new chapter in the ongoing struggle between global powers in Africa? What's your read on the place of Africa in these broader issues? Well, it's partly that this extractivist project has begun to reach limits and that the so-called Africa rising uh, agenda, which was to promote neoliberal uh, extraction and trade, um, has 
led to a disaster with the crash of commodity prices, and that's left a huge debt. Foreign debt is at unprecedented levels, and it means that there's not that much economic activity. Um, China isn't going to be expanding as fast as it thought. These big projects like the Bagamoyo port, or some of ours in South Africa, are you know, delayed. I wrote about that in Monthly Review uh, Journal last uh, September. But AFRICON particularly uh, was set up by Bush and uh, amplified by Obama. And if uh, Nick Terse is right, he does some of the best research on this. Uh, it's in you know more than 40 countries, some presence, uh, skirmishes or training. or uh, And we saw in Niger uh, the uh, death of four U.S. servicemen. But the main thing that they've been doing is um, setting up uh, small bases to attack um, Islamic extremists, uh, and that's in the Sahel, going across from Mali, uh, and then over to the Horn of Africa, where Somalia is the site of struggle. There was a little bit of um, action in Uganda, but um, I haven't seen enough of AFRICOM in southern Africa. There is a, allegedly a potential base being discussed for Botswana next door to us. But um, frankly, the deputy sheriff role that South Africa plays, meaning uh, the South African government is often putting its forces into peacekeeping or into various adventures, which often go sour. Uh, we had one in the Central African Republic five years ago that was a disaster. And it was a very clear sub-imperial sort of uh, deal-making grab between uh, South Africa's government and the local dictator. And I think instead of it being uh, the kind of Cold War zone that we saw from the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s in the in the sort of decolonial period, the anti-apartheid, anti-Rhodesian um, war period, uh, we're looking at um, much more of our tensions and conflicts being locally generated. There, the mining industry, the petroleum industry is going to be fueling a lot of these conflicts. Um, but there's probably a little less geopolitical import. In other words, in the United Nations, where African nations will generally vote um, uh, with uh, the sort of majority of countries, there will occasionally be sites of conflict. The most recent was Libya, where the African Union, minus South Africa, voted against uh, the NATO uh, uh, desire to, to, to put a no-fly zone. And the result uh, was that you know, NATO went ahead, French and US bombers made uh, total chaos of Libya. Um, and South Africa was just temporarily allied with the US. But mostly, this is not really that big a deal. The United Nations isn't that big a player in world geopolitics anymore. Um, and it's more uh, whether or not extractivism emerges again from the Chinese Belt and Road that would raise commodity prices and make Africa attractive again, that I think a lot of the geopolitical conflict has to look at aside from the uh, Islamic uh, reach into parts of Northern Africa. And that is less likely in a period ahead where world economy will go into another deep recession and Africa will probably be off the map again. And I think that might be good in the sense that there's so many of the local protest movements that need that space, that don't need uh, US intervention or or intervention from, from uh, China or other countries. Uh, and it's an opportunity perhaps in the period ahead for more sovereignty for uh, African uh, movements. Let's hope that's the way it'll turn out. And certainly that's the way we're expecting South Africa to emerge because what we saw with Zimbabwe was rather disturbing uh, insofar as a, as a top general had to go to China to get permission to have a coup against Robert Mugabe. Nobody wants to see anything like that in this place. 
Very interesting. Very well said. So much more to so much more to discuss, but we'll have to leave it there. Uh, hopefully, we can have you back on the show to touch on many other key issues. Again, uh, Patrick Bond is, uh, I think, one of the one of the foremost experts on a lot of these issues. I highly recommend his work. Follow him. Uh, he's regularly published in Counterpunch, but elsewhere as well. The forthcoming book, City of Rascals: The Uneven Development of Durban, that should be out in September from Jacana Press. Of course, Bricks and Anti-Capitalist Critique from Haymarket and uh, that he co-authored South Africa, The Present as History. Uh, Patrick Bond, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, great to be with you. Hope to talk to you again, I'm sure. Thank you. And listeners, thank you as always. I'll speak to you again real soon.